0: Welcome to the latest episode of our podcast series for advisors considering the independent space. Today's episode is Brian Hamburger Talks Trends, Options, and Opportunity, and What Advisors Need to Consider Before Making the Leap, a conversation with the founder of Hamburger Law Firm and Market Council. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. podcast is available on our website diamond-consultants.com and on advisorhub.com as well as apple podcasts and other major podcast platforms and if you're listening to the series on the apple podcast app be sure to leave a star rating and review it serves as a guide to us as well as your colleagues in the wealth management industry who may be searching for valuable content to tune into Few names in the wealth management space are as well known as that of my guest in this episode. Brian Hamburger is the founder and managing member of Hamburger Law Firm, a practice focused on the investment and securities industry, including entrepreneurial, firm structure, governance, and employment matters. He is also the founder, president, and CEO of Market Council, one of the industry's leading business and regulatory compliance consulting firms. If that wasn't enough, Brian is also the brains behind the Market Council Summit, an annual event that brings together some of the biggest names in wealth management and the business world at large, a forum that celebrates independence and the entrepreneurial spirit like none other. Brian is no doubt a busy guy, someone who possesses incredible energy and a unique combination of legal acumen, business knowledge, and entrepreneurial zeitgeist. So I feel lucky that he accepted my invitation to be on the show for a spirited dialogue about the breakaway movement. To weigh in on the trends he's seeing, what to be aware of in the post-protocol world, how recent M&A deals impact independence, and share his foresight on the longer term. Plus, we'll tap his expertise for advice on how to choose the right independent model, what advisors need to know to prepare themselves to make the leap, and much more. Brian is a colleague, and I'm proud to say a friend. I know our conversation will be an interesting one, so let's jump right in. Brian, I am really grateful for your time and wisdom today.
1: I am uh, incredibly grateful to be here, Mindy. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Tell us a little bit about your background prior to forming the Hamburger Law Firm and Market Council, if you would.
1: Uh, sure, it's a background that I'm proud of, but I, I often don't get to share. I mean, I grew up in the business. Uh, my my father was an investment advisor, and I I really saw firsthand the impact that good advice can can have on clients. It makes people more confident in uh, in living their life, and that, that's a great thing. But I also realized early on that I didn't have the wherewithal to meet with individuals you know, at the kitchen table and discuss their financial plans or asset allocation. So I explored other areas within financial services. I worked for a great wirehouse team in college, but again, was a bit underwhelmed by the opportunities there. I really didn't buy into the whole wirehouse methodology that somehow they knew more than the customers knew, you know, going back to like the EF Hutton commercials and, you know, coming out of college, I got a degree in finance and economics and coming out of college, I got some job offers from mutual fund companies. But they were in the customer service area, and I really didn't see a clear path to do something intriguing. So, at the urging of my grandmother, I went to law school. And like many Jewish grandmothers, you know, she's <laughs> she thinks uh, being a lawyer or a doctor are, are the two careers that uh, that one should consider. You know, but her rationale was sound. I mean, she said, "Whatever you choose to do in life, you're you're a lot more likely to win the game if you know the rules." and uh, And I bought it, and uh, I went to law school. And in law school, I really had some amazing experiences. I, I interned for, uh, for a federal judge. I spent a semester working for the uh, state appellate court. And then finally, my securities law professor arranged for me to clerk at the SEC in the enforcement division, which he was, uh, he was the head of. So I got out of law school and then without any real clear direction, I took a job as, as a securities lawyer at a pretty well-established firm. And I, I really loved the work, but I hated the big firm politics and the non client centric responsibilities that I had. So I left after not all that much time and I, I sold my first house, moved into a cabin with my then wife and my six month old daughter in tow, and uh, started market council in the hamburger law firm on the same day.
0: Amazing. So, what happened? That was in 2000. What needs were you looking to solve for? And why the whole two firm concept? Like, what happened then?
1: Well, you know, advisors had uh, different needs, and they were being addressed by primarily two different firms. There were registration services, some called them service bureaus, and there were law firms. Registration services at the time were selling very modular pieces with no accountability for the entire projects. And clients, quite frankly, couldn't figure out what they needed or what they were getting and what the whole project would, would cost them. Law firms, on the other hand, had, and for that matter, they continue to have, call us if you need us model, right? That's based primarily on hourly billing. And as such, it incentivizes inefficiency and there's little accountability. Uh, and you know, again, clients don't know what it's going to cost them. So what we're trying to solve for is we're trying to build something that was proactive. It was based on the investment that we made with the client on the front end of the relationship to deeply understand the client. And we want to know everything we can about the clients, why they're in business, How do they think about their mission? What are their needs, goals, and objectives? What's their appetite for risk? And then we want to pair that. So we take that upfront investment and pair that with an efficient and logical process in everything we do. It includes having an acute sense that every request that we make to the client actually costs them money beyond what they're paying us, right? We look at the operational burden that we have on our firms. And we also wanted to be one of those firms that filtered out so much of the noise that was out there. And that noise distracts advisors from their mission uh, while ensuring that we weren't taking our eye off the ball. So, our clients don't need to know about proposed rules, for example, but we do. And we'll track those developments. We'll prepare for the impact that it's going to have on our clients. We'll design a solution. And then we're going to come to them when it's time to implement. And, Mindy, while we didn't solve for it early on, uh, more recently we've seen the proliferation of low cost or, or some automated solutions in the place, largely backed by PE firms that are chasing some higher margins. And so, you know, we've had to address that as a competitive threat as well. You know, automation is good. We'd be willing to hold our technology spend up against any firm of our size. Uh, And we have that piece, but it's a tool that we use for maintaining robust client profiles and handling recurring tasks, that type of thing. But we're not at the point where technology can replace human judgment, much like for investment advisors. And as for low costs, I mean, our clients typically focus on value. And as you know, price is only one component of value and people pretty quickly forget what something costs, but the, the memory of quality really tends to linger. So I go out there, I hire the best service people and legal counsel that I can find at any price. And I give them the systems and resources to perform. And, um, it's not just cheap, you know, it's, it's just not cheap. Uh, But the secret sauce is that people don't really sign up for our service and start using it. We we stick to our roots. We gather a lot of information at the start of the relationship, and we pair that with the advisor's objectives to build the business that they envision. But all that said, our biggest competition has and always remains the do-it-yourself advisor, which arguably works for some of the smallest advisors and for some of the largest that have the resources to do it. But for everyone else, they're they're often squandering time and resources by going at it alone. Mm -hmm.
0: So I want to focus for a minute on the breakaway market. Market Council has really been the architect for so many of the breakaway advisors and the RIAs that they've set up. Walk us through or tell me a little bit, if you would, about the types of advisors you work with and what you do for them from the very beginning till the time that they are an extant firm.
1: Sure. Well, thanks for connecting us with that breakaway movement. I mean, we we see our brand as our most valuable asset. And I know everyone at Market Council who walks through our doors each day is asking themselves, how can I contribute to the brand's goodwill? But I'll tell you, over the past 19 plus years, we've changed virtually everything in our company, except for our service platforms, you know, the, the actual services that we set out to perform, our mission, values, and and our standards. And part of the reason for that is, I think, to be successful in a, in a fast-growing industry, we really need to be committed to continuous improvement in every single area. So one of the changes that I think has really taken place since I started Market Council is we're far more interconnected than we were early on. I mean, we rely upon partners like, like yourself, And the strength of relationships in this space can't be overstated. It's a really small industry when you take a look at all the really critical decision makers. I mean, we run into one another at uh, conferences throughout the year. I mean, sometimes, Mindy, you and I have a chance to catch up in the hallway and you're coming in and I'm coming out. But the really neat thing is all the decision makers are available uh, by text message or a quick phone call. And so we can solve problems really quickly. So that interconnectedness is really key. I think we're also uh, positioned for a post-broker protocol era. You know, we're we're coming together with industry partners across the, the space to really reduce contingencies in this area, and we'll continue to invest in those solutions, recognizing that that's a likely outcome. But as far as types of advisors, you know, we're working with, our clients are registered investment advisors and those looking to become advisors. We also work with service providers to advisors ranging from broker-dealers to fintechs. It's really that broad of a client platform.
0: Right. So if I'm an advisor at Merrill Lynch, UBS, Morgan Stanley, Wells Fargo, or otherwise, and I'm considering going independent, I know uh, from where I, from my vantage point, as I counsel these folks and help them to sort of figure out what is the best platform, best custodian, best model, I know that, um, One of the most important steps, obviously, is to be in touch with someone that can really architect things from beginning to end. So what are some of those things that an advisor sitting in a wirehouse contemplating independence needs to think about at the very beginning?
1: Well, I think so often people are led by industry press, right? They're looking at, you know, what is everyone else doing? That's what I should probably be doing. And while that is likely to be the answer, right? Because statistics don't lie. It also is quite likely not to be the answer for them. And so the first thing that we ask them to do is really search inside. Let's not start on why you're leaving, but let's let's really talk about what it is you envision, what it is you're looking to build. Because the departure is gonna fade pretty quickly in the background, right? The bad branch manager, the restrictive policies, the office climate or politics, All of that's going to disappear really, really fast. And what you're going to be left with is you're going to be the one sitting in the office with your colleagues. And really the question is, what do you envision that to be? And so when we talk to them, we talk about what's the impetus for departure. And when we start to hear these short-term pain points, we say, that's not the impetus. You know, the impetus for departure has to be something that's pulling you forward, not something that's driving you away. And, you know, we want them to engage in discussions with, uh, with folks like yourself. We want them to feel comfortable in sharing those needs, goals, uh, and objectives. At the same time, you know, the, we also don't want them to have too many conversations because one of the things, and I hope we get to this, you know, within our podcast is that on-ramp to independence is now seven lanes wide. It's really confusing. And when people are guided by others that are selling them on one particular concept, I think that that's quite limiting and often leads to paralysis. We really like to avoid that. And we want them to have the conversations, we just want them to limit those conversations to a small handful of trusted advisors.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more about that. The waterfall of possibilities for an independent-minded advisor has expanded exponentially. And to your point early on, there's a lot of noise out there. And it's very important that one is guided by people that are objective and in the know and well-connected because it's important to filter out a lot of the noise. I wanna switch gears a second to the industry at large. So our firms are similar in that we both really act as conduits to help people get from here to there. Here being, I'm sitting at a wirehouse or a traditional brokerage firm, and there being independent in some version. And in a previous conversation, actually, in, in one of those hallways at a conference you're referencing, you and I talked about how 2019 was shaping up to be a record year. And it was for us, and I'm pretty sure it is it was for you as well. So what do you see as the key drivers behind the surge and advisors leaving the traditional brokerage firms to go some version of independence?
1: It's a great question. We could spend all day talking about it. I believe it comes down to just a few key components. Technology is our headline. Technology for us continues to be the main agent of change and driver of the independence movement. Technology is a change agent, primarily not because of the technology itself, but because of their business model, their SaaS business model. So service as a subscription business model really allows the technology to be consumed as a service through a subscription, through an incremental subscription. So what that means is that advisors can purchase enterprise-class technology on a per-user basis. They can purchase a voice-over IP telephone system on a per-user basis. They can pay for this on a monthly basis without a large upfront investment. And what we found is that incremental cost has led to advisors being able to leave their firms and having technology as good as, as, if not better, than the technology that they left behind, because the firms that they've left behind have to deploy it for thousands of reps simultaneously. On top of that, the UI, so the, the user interface and the, the look of the technology really is starting to lend itself to easy adoption and high utilization rates. In the past, you, know, you needed to hire all these programmers and developers to build out custom fields and workflows, but the UI that a lot of the CRM systems and portfolio accounting systems are utilizing allow advisors to do that on, the, on their own so as a result of that technology, uh, we have advisors who can delegate tasks uh, that are outside of their core competencies to an experienced service provider, for example, but they can still monitor those tasks as if the service provider was sitting in the same office as them and then i think also mobile right mobile as a component of technology has made the whole work from anywhere concept a reality and it really fits into the advisor lifestyle especially as we continue to see the greying of the investment advisor as well as trends on the in the millennial generation uh, where they don't want to necessarily have to go to one office all the time but technology specifically impacts the move to independence because it offers advisors a whole host of options. And, you know, I, the analogy I have is remember uh, back in the day, you published uh, kind of that that gradient scale of most restrictive to least restrictive employment arrangements. Right. And you went from kind of banks and trust companies and you went all the way over to independence. You remember when you did that probably 10, 15 years ago? Sure. All right. So that's how I think of what technology helps support. So we separate this into two categories. You got supported independence and full independence. And technology now has made this supported independence model a reality. So advisors can narrow the universe of choice by looking for support from other providers that are going to package this myriad of service providers that advisors need to choose from. And advisors going the route are going to enjoy simplified decision-making, better pricing, leveraged service provider expertise, and more time to focus on their core business. And that's an option out there. But there's also the option to go full independent, right? And and fully independent means that the advisor can select from any custodian or any CRM or any portfolio accounting tool that fits their practice. And advisors going that route, they can shop for the best price and the best to breed options, but it's overwhelming for some and they don't have as much pricing power as much leverage as under the the supported independence model so there's a the trade off right do I want to do I want to buy stuff that's kind of already bundled and packaged or do I want to have the autonomy to make any decision I want but have the burden to connect those components on my own and that's one of those difficult decisions that I think you were alluding to earlier which is which one is right? Am I am I the tinkerer? Am I the one that always wants to chase the the greatest and latest? Or am I the one that's okay with maybe it's a B technology, but it simply works and it works with everything else that's already in uh, in place? And I think that that's technology provides a really, really critical decision point for advisors. Uh, But obviously there's, there's other reasons, right? And those reasons haven't changed where RAAs can serve their clients in a far more aligned business model with fewer conflicts of interest, greater autonomy to select what's best for the client, whether it's service model or investments, there's an entrepreneurial mindset to be their own boss. Again, whether it's a true entrepreneur that's completely independent or one that's working through an independent platform. I think there's an ongoing desire for people to build their own brand and have some real equity at some point in their career. And whether that equity is used to help monetize the business for successors or an eventual exit, I think that's real. And advisors just want to get what's best out there, right? They want access to best of breed technology, investment options, support, uh, and they don't want to have to go through a firm in order to get that. So all of those data points continue to be true and are becoming more so as we go forward. Not, uh, you know, not dwindling.
0: Yeah. So I agree with you. And in fact, I want to check something out with you. I wrote a piece just recently talking about the nine trends or predictions we had for 2020 to this end. And I want to check a couple of them out with you. My thesis was the fact that advisor movement today is really driven by three things, a perfect storm, I called it. And one was the notion of changing client expectations. Clients, the the term fiduciary or the idea of an advisor being fiduciary has become more mainstream. So clients are much less tethered to the brand of the firm and much more about, is my advisor able to do what's best for me? Second is changing advisor sentiment where advisors want all the things you just talked about, more freedom and control. They have an entrepreneurial mindset. They want access to best in breed, all that sort of stuff. And the third thing is, is that the more the big firms have attempted to tie the advisor's down, the more it's had the opposite effect. It's, you know, I'll show you. You're gonna try tying me down. I'm out of here. And I think all of those things are sort of the broad reasons why there's been a lot of movement. One of the trends we predicted is that we're gonna to continue to see the elite teams, the corner office, the barons and forbes top advisors in the industry going independent, which is really extraordinary. And so do you think that that's driven by what you said, not only the entrepreneurial mindset, but perhaps more their desire for no limitations and access to best of everything?
1: Yeah. So I'm excited. I love that article. I'm excited that we're going to chat about it. So the answer to that first one is yes, right? The industry is hyper-focused on elite teams. And if you don't want to know why, just look at their Characteristics because every one of those characteristics are really attractive to acquirers. The recent study by InvestNet showed that 77% of elite RAAs serve clients who have 10 to $30 million of assets, compared to just 34% at non elite firms. The elite teams tend to be generationally diverse, which is really attractive to acquirers. They often work in teams. And so the client relationship is rarely owned by a single rockstar advisor anymore, right? And we've known and worked with plenty of those rockstar advisors, but these elite teams are a bit different. And the really nuanced issue with with elite teams is that they use the same technology as the non-elite teams, but they're better able to integrate it into their practices. They invest to integrate it and they simply get more use from the exact same spend. So they're buying the same technology. They're buying the same licenses, but their team leverages the technology more, but the most distinguishing characteristic of these successful advisors are their ability to articulate their value proposition and their willingness to add resources or invest in resources such as uh, new hires in advance of the demand. And so You know, we see these elite teams are continuing to grow. There's also a human component, right? The human component is the proof of concept is there, right? They're sitting there saying, well, if Sally did this, if Jerry did this, I could do it. So before, uh, I think the you know firms saw these elite teams as, well, they'll never go anywhere because they need this brand in order to survive. But we've already seen these elite teams vote with their feet and move out and turns out they don't need the brand in order to survive their uh, their client relationships are uh, are winning the day
0: so i agree with that completely how do you think the wirehouses will respond because Early on, when the Luminous guys, when Mark Sear and David Ho left Merrill to form Luminous, the response on the part of the wirehouses was that was a one off. And as independent advisors left the wirehouses, breakaways left after that, the response was either it was planned attrition, or ah, he was going to leave anyway, or ah, he wasn't that good anyway, or whatever it was. And it's hard to ignore when you're watching not just elite, but uber elite teams and advisors move. So, do you think that the wirehouses, in fact, it's funny, Brian, I remember speaking at one of your market council summits years ago and I interviewed Sally Kraczek. And the topic you gave me was to talk with Sally about do you think that the wirehouses will respond by launching their own independent models? And so, generally speaking, what do you think of that?
1: Uh, they can't, right? And so I think we've seen their response. Their response is close the prison gates, roll up the drawbridge, uh, that people aren't going to leave, and they're not going to leave easily, at least for you know for a couple of the wirehouses. But they've also shown their cards because they've started through by way of their compensation systems and by way of their contracts to disintermediate the advisor. Right? There's been a number of articles written recently that the advisor is no longer king. The advisor is no longer the centerpiece. Uh, Relationship that the client has with the firm. And, you know, when you speak to executives at these firms who have been in on a lot of the high end executive meetings, they'll tell you that the response is simply to, cut out the advisor as the focal point of the relationship deepen the relationship directly between the firm and its clients and really move the advisor under you know their ideal scenario to more of a salaried position where you're effectively acting no different than you would if you were working at a bank and it's no surprise that so many of them see the bank model as the model to retain the assets. And if you look at their projections that they'll share, they'll say, we can afford to lose an awful lot of assets if the remainder of the assets that stay here are far more profitable to the firm. So I think we've already seen their response. And because of that, because that's the tact that they're taking, I think strategically, it preempts them from launching an independent model as a real venture. Because they would just see an outpouring from, of their advisors moving to that independent model, and that really is contrary to, uh, to the direction that we're seeing them go.
0: Let's talk about M&A for a second. The M&A market has been frothy, as a lot of people call it, in the RIA space. And from our perspective, robust M&A activity will persist in the space with industry leaders agreeing that there's plenty of potential and deep pockets eager to invest in the right businesses. Do you agree? Do you see it that way?
1: I completely agree. There's no doubt that robust M&A activity is going to continue in the independent space. The industry's record transactions volume is being driven by a wide variety of influences. We've got record high valuations. Uh, they can't be disputed. There's been a complete lack of succession planning in the industry, right? We've got a, the graying of advisors is real. Yet, no matter how much we beat that drum, advisors continue to not be engaged in meaningful succession planning. We've seen over the last three to five years, the availability of sophisticated, well-capitalized uh, acquirers, and that combination is expected to drive increased uh, m and activity in the industry for the next five to eight years. Uh, but there are a few caveats. It's not all rosy. If we look at the capital that's fueling so many of these deals, that capital is early stage capital. It's among the most expensive capital that you can find, and it's among the most the least patient capital you can find. So it's telling that advisors are pulling that lever in lieu of debt, which is also available. And The debt would allow the advisors to maintain the upside of the firm's growth, but they're more frequently than not selling to this early stage capital, which is mostly private equity. And private equity investors, they see the opportunity because the RA market is so fragmented, and they think they can make quick work of aggregating within the space. I mean, if you look, PE firms are responsible for just about every deal over a billion dollars of assets over the last two years. We're getting questions, right? The questions that are coming in from regulators they're trying to grapple with the question of can the RA serve two masters, right? Which is a bit ironic because warehouses have been traded publicly for so long. But you know, there's sense among regulators is that advisors may be breaking away from one set of conflicted owners and running right into the arms of another. And finally, I'd say that clients themselves, particularly sophisticated clients, they haven't shown a real preference for a PE-backed RAA over one that's owned and operated by an individual advisor or a team of advisors and at the end of the day one thing that we know is the client demand wins and so what's missing in a lot of these pe back transactions is what's in it for the client we know what's in it for the advisor we know what's in it for the employees and we certainly know what's in it for the investor the uh, which is the pe firm but what's in it for the clients and until these pe firms can actually show a real value proposition for those clients and be able to show that they're able to manage and mitigate the conflicts of interest that come along with that investment, then I think people will have kind of one eyebrow raised on a lot of the investment that's going on. But remember, we're still seeing this early stage capital. As long as we can write that ship, we'll start to see more patient capital moving into this space next.
0: Yeah, and I love your comments about the notion of selling equity or taking on debt. And that in and of itself is worthy of its own episode. And we should sort of put a pin in that conversation and have it, save it for another day. I'd love to. But you're absolutely right about, you know it's not all rosy and lots to be considered. But I also think that the notion, no matter how you choose to run your firm whether it be as an individual standalone firm PE backed or you know merge with a larger RAA firm the opportunity that is M&A within the space i think drives back to what we were talking about, why these elite what's appealing or what's drawing elite advisors to the independent space. Because if they subscribe to the theory of build it with the end in mind, then they're all thinking about not just how do I build the right firm, but how do I build it for maximum enterprise value?
1: Right. But what they're so I completely agree with your sentiment, but we're jumping over one thing, which is advisors, they're concerned about their exit when it's time to exit. And that's already too late, right? So that's forcing them to limit their scope of options. If advisors are really contemplative and if they're planning for their exit and they're looking at a five to 10 year glide path to the exit, there's so many options out there, right? There's traditional banks, there's other lenders, specialized lenders in the space. There are different insurance strategies. But I would argue that if advisors are willing to take that longer glide path to exit, that they could get far more by capitalizing and leveraging, no pun intended on capitalizing, but leveraging their existing staff and coming up with a strong succession plan that allows them to participate in that transition over that five to 10 years, and they can continue to be a shareholder. I mean, keep in mind, this is the most valuable asset that an advisor owns, and it's a bit telling that they're willing to sell 100% of it to a private equity firm and stay on board for three years and, and exit. They did this for a reason, right? They made this hard move to independence for a reason. And I think sometimes they need to be reminded of that reason before jumping back into the arms of another set of owners. I think it's entirely possible, but too often we'll hear from advisors who are looking to sell and we'll say, okay, well, what's your time frame?" Well, I just got diagnosed with this illness or my spouse and I agree that we're going to do this in two years. Well, that's not going to work i mean yeah of course we can find a buyer but we can't optimize the exit and i guess the other side of that is people read headlines right so they'll say oh this firm sold for 20 million this firm mm-hmm. sold for 40 million and those headline deals aren't really that's not the story right so much of that is is based on earnout so much of that is variable and I think what doesn't make the, the headlines, and it's a shame, is this person set in place a succession plan 10 years ago, and look how they grew their firm over those 10 years, and they're going to continue to own 40% of the firm, and the firm's now thriving. You know, that to me is amazing but that doesn't make the headlines because that's way too complicated of a story.
0: Yeah. And so I think that's actually part of the point is that whether or not you build a firm that you will ultimately sell to private equity or otherwise, or build a firm where you build an internal succession, what's appealing more and more to these elite advisors is the having control and flexibility over how you do it. Some will choose to build a firm to sell, Others will choose to build a firm that will create a long legacy where they will own a part of it in perpetuity and continue to see it thrive. And that's the whole point behind independence that the advisor gets to pick.
1: And isn't that what we all want? We just want the autonomy to do things on our terms.
0: For sure. All right. Speaking of M&A, it's a perfect time to segue to some of the biggest deals over the last year. So one at a time, what do you think about the Schwab acquisition of TD?
1: Ah, yeah, it's tough to ignore that one. But I'll tell you, I'll ignore the retail implications as well as I have no idea whether they paid or received a reasonable price for the deal. But from the advisor perspective, I think strategically, it's a great move by Schwab and TD. Well, while they were, you know, at the same park, they weren't playing in the same sandbox, right? There were, uh, I'm guessing there were very few deals that you introduced to both of those firms simultaneously. The features of an advisor led themselves to one or the other, typically. Would you tend to agree? Oh, for sure. So, for, so I don't think there's all that much crossover among prospective advisors. Uh, from the perspective of advisors that are working with Schwab, I think they're going to gain some of the really intriguing technologies that TD has excelled at developing over the years. For TD advisors, there's, of course, some risk for disruption, depending upon some key decisions that Schwab hasn't yet made for the integration of the firms. But here's what's so incredibly cool about the independent space. If it hurts too much advisors retain the option to leave or begin a relationship with another custodian. And while that's not without its own pain, they have that choice. And that's, what's amazing here. They don't need to leave their firm to do it. Right. Remember back when Merrill was acquired by B of A, those advisors who didn't want to work for B of A were forced to leave their employment. If they don't want to work there here, advisors can just give their clients a new account form with another firm and cut the assets from one firm to the other. They're not acting as agent for any of those firms. That's what keeps all service providers within the independent space accountable. We have to continue to bring our A game. Otherwise, advisors, they vote with their feet and their dollars. How about
0: the Goldman Sachs acquisition of United Capital?
1: Well, this to me was the next iteration of uh, what I mean, one of the deals you mentioned earlier, you know, which was uh, Luminous. And we saw that play out a number of times over the last several years where a traditional bank would acquire an RIA practice. And we've seen that pick up in frequency over the years. So this was to me, was the next iteration of that. I got a chance to have a great conversation on stage with uh, Joe Duran at uh, the Market Council Summit this past December. And I see the deal as a validation of the model and services that are being provided by independent advisors from a major financial institution. I mean, Joe's a a dynamic personality, uh, but let's not take away from the fact that he built a great business, one that intentionally addressed the gaps in the high net worth space, making it a really attractive target for Goldman's initiatives uh, to go out and reach the mass affluent. There's plenty of other strong advisors and financial institutions that I'm sure will be dancing with each other for years to come. This one's a bit different. I think what we'll find is we'll find a lot of deals going forward come in the form of traditional mergers, acquisitions, or more likely some alternative business arrangements and and partnerships and deals.
0: I actually would agree with that as well. I want to talk about, pivot for a second to some of the things that are on advisors' minds, the, things, the, the concerns we hear about most often. You mentioned at the beginning or earlier in this segment that you think we're heading toward a post-broker protocol world. So mm-hmm. from a legal perspective, how big a deal is it that several firms have already pulled out and you're predicting that others will follow?
1: Well, it's not. I mean, advisors' transitions continue at healthy rates. Contrary to recent news, even when firms pulled out of the protocol, we continue to do just as many deals out of those firms the following year. We've enjoyed this stable, predictable path uh, that the broker protocol has provided for so many years. But let's remember that we transitioned many advisors well before the protocol, and we expect to do so for a long time to come with or without those protocol protections. We've signed up a lot of firms to the protocol, and it's a great tool. But non-protocol transitions are are really interesting. Advisors should just know that the protocol is not a permanent fixture. Um, Firms need to give 10 days notice before they leave the protocol. And we expect that we'll see more firms leaving the protocol. I mean, logically speaking, they're having a tough time answering shareholders. Why Why are we keeping that door open for reps to leave when we can close and at least some will be discouraged from leaving. I mean that's what logic tells them. We saw with UBS and Morgan Stanley that that did not necessarily stem the tide of high-end uh, advisor departures. In fact, to your point earlier, it really motivated some of them and saying, "Well, you're not you're not going to close that door on me." I'm leaving. And, you know, it's almost like, what are you trying to prevent me from doing? Or what are you afraid of? I think a firm's departure from the protocol validates the independent space and validates the threat that we've been uh, talking about. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, the advisor has one career. They're having to make a difficult choice, albeit perhaps, but they're having to make a choice as to what they're going to be known for in that career. And very few advisors want to be known as a career registered representative with a particular firm.
0: I would agree with that. I think that a lot of what the big firms have done have, including the decisions to pull out of protocol, have emboldened the advisor force. But still, even the most emboldened, even those that are risk takers by nature, ask the question or worry. So if there is no protocol, then I'm governed by the post-employment restrictions in my employment agreement. And for most, that's a non-solicit. For some, it's a garden leave. But those with garden leave typically were never covered by protocol anyway. But can you give us just one or two examples of how an advisor would handle the non-solicit? How does he or she get comfortable with the notion of leaving XYZ non-protocol firm and going elsewhere, whether it be independent or to another firm? Because even if that other firm is part of the protocol, it is considered a non-protocol move if both Parties, both firms, are not in protocol. So, what are a couple sort of strategies, if you will, for an advisor who's got a non-solicit and wants to get comfortable with the fact that his clients will follow?
1: So, that's a great question, and um, and we get that question frequently. And it's one that uh, I'm hesitant to answer only because of the misinformation that comes off of it. But of course, for you, I'll answer every question. So many advisors come to us, and they're fueled by misinformation. Right. They've been told that they can't do something right, because it's in their contract or they can't do something because it's a compliance issue. You know, When you peel back, maybe it was a risk management decision made by the firm, but they're starting with, you know, from a point of, of bad information. In other situations, they've been given advice or learned based upon someone else's transition. But as you know, every transition is, uh, is unique. Variables include the obvious, right? You just mentioned the employer, their current employer, and where they want to transition to. But there's less obvious areas, right? We've got to look at what is or are the state laws that affect you? What's the historical behavior of your current employer? What does your client's and team's composition look like? Including stuff like what's your relationship with your branch manager and management? And so advisors are looking at at all of this, and they're often saying, hey, I know someone who left the firm last year and this is what happened to them and this is how they did it. So this is what I'm going to do. It doesn't work for everybody. We have certain clients who we green light to have conversations with their clients about uh, about what it would look like if they if they left. We don't do it for others for a whole variety of reasons. Advisors have also filled with misinformation because they've read headlines in industry press and, you know, it's led to fear you know, when they read about bad transitions or overconfidence, when a large group walks out with all their clients and data and there's no lawsuit, but they're often not hearing the backstory, right? All the prep that went involved and what they did to, you know, to, to make sure. So yeah, the restrictions are, that are contained within their employment agreements often govern, except in those states where those restrictions are too far reaching. Even when those restrictions apply, those restrictions don't mean that you can't leave the firm. It means that you typically, can't solicit your clients, which is far more limited than leaving the firm. There are other ways to go to your clients and notify them about the departure. And depending upon what state we're in, we're going to employ different tactics, whether that's some type of notification on LinkedIn, whether that's a mailing, or whether that's a telephone campaign and a conversation that we're having. But the other thing that we can't forget about are all of the other applicable laws, rules, and regulations. So between regulation, SP... FINRA rules, state laws, rules and regulations, neither the broker protocol or a private employment agreement trump those laws. So at the end of the day, it's actually the law that is more likely to determine what you can and can't do than the plain language that's in in the client agreement.
0: That was very helpful. How about the spate of high-profile terminations we've seen in the last number of years? I mean, when I started the business 21 or 22 years ago, the bigger you were, meaning the more you produced, the more insulated you were. So if you did something that was wrong, you might have gotten a slap on the wrist, but that was about it. But today, it feels like the bigger you are, the more you've got a target on your back or the more you're in the sights of compliance. And so how do you counsel worried advisors? How vulnerable are they?
1: Everything, everything we're talking about here is interconnected. So, uh, warehouses are run for the pleasure of their shareholders, and their shareholders read media reports and you know newspapers and headlines. So it's no surprise that they've become far more risk averse uh, over the years. Doesn't mean they won't keep a representative that is going through some type of routine uh, client or regulatory uh, inquiry, but their trigger is way quicker if they think that the benefits of keeping. Uh, the rep are being outweighed by their exposure. We've learned over the years that the firm has a shot of getting rid of the rep and keeping their assets and perhaps the remainder of their team. Well, that just becomes the layup. That's when they're quick to pull that trigger. In other cases, we see terminations for business purposes. Uh, rather, I should say, they're stated that they're for business purposes, but they're justified by creating or inflating some type of compliance or or risk concerns. We really like to stay. We really prefer to stay ahead of these. But despite our warnings to folks that are under the threat of termination, so many advisors stay in place until the firm makes the decision. And at that point, if they wait for the firm to fire them, everything just gets a lot more complicated, difficult timelines become more compressed. And uh, the pressure on trying to find a better home within an appropriate time frame is, um, you know, has become a lot more difficult for you and, and for us.
0: Yeah, we see it the same way. Okay, one last question because this has been incredibly enlightening and fascinating. And you've given me some ideas for some future topics as well. So I'm grateful. But one last question. Looking five or 10 years out, what's the next big thing? What are the things that should either concern or excite advisors?
1: You know, I'm not a fortune teller, uh, but the good thing is, I don't think I have to be. Um, We need to remember that by definition, a registered investment advisor is such because they provide advice. About securities for compensation. That's what they all have in common. That's what they always will have in common. And the independent space, absolutely everything else around that definition is going to change. So, what do you do, right? I mean, it's important to stay nimble, stay on top of trends, and embrace uh, that change. For my own business, we're really fortunate. We placed ourselves in a fast growing industry at the center of all things interesting. And things are going to continue to change all around us, but fortunately, are for investment advisor clients, sound, objective advice never goes out of style. So I'm really, uh, really optimistic about, uh, about the future of this space.
0: Wonderful. Brian, thank you so very much. As I said, this was incredibly enlightening, delightful, and you are a friend and a colleague, and I'm grateful for that. And uh, we look forward to further conversation.
1: Well, thanks, Ben. I always enjoy every conversation we have, including this one that's going to be shared with everybody.
0: While the landscape has evolved to address changing advisor sentiment and client expectations, as Brian pointed out, it's technology that's been the real game changer. Independent advisors now have access to the same or better tech platforms and can deliver best-in-class solutions and a host of options in cost-effective ways, giving them a true level playing field on which to compete with the big brokerage firms. In our next episode, we'll be joined by Bill Williams, the Executive Vice President of the Ameriprise Franchise Group. At over 125 years old, Ameriprise is likely the most misunderstood broker dealer in the space. We'll unpack what they've been doing in recent years that seems to be resonating so well with advisors and how that's translating into a recruiting surge for the firm. I hope you'll tune in. Until then, I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com and click on the tools and resources link for more valuable content. You'll also find a link to subscribe for regular updates to this series. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email Perspectives for Advisors, click on the blog link to browse recent articles. Feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached at 908-908. 879-1002 or mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. Thank you for listening. I also want to thank Advisor Hub for sharing this podcast with their viewers and subscribers. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence.